Sean Haney here with realagriculture.com and Real Ag Real Radio 147 Sirius XM. We are focusing on the one year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. It's hard to believe uh, one year has passed. Right now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the markets and uh, what we've seen from a market perspective as it relates to what's happened in Ukraine and look a little bit ahead in terms of what could happen going forward. We are joined by Arlen Suderman with StoneX. Arlen, great to see you again. It's good to be back with you, Sean. Okay, so I guess let's look back first. How has the war in Ukraine impacted the commodity markets? Impacted it a great deal. I mean, if you look at today's futures prices, you think, well, it really hasn't because we're back down to we've taken out most of the war premium, if if not all of it, depending on the market you're looking at. Um, but it has dynamically changed the world in a great way in that impact in a way that impacts the commodities. First of all, we had become very comfortable with just-in-time supplies in the world. In other words, if a country needed something it knew, we could get it quick. And we have a very efficient transportation system in the world. And so we really didn't worry about having to build up inventories. Most countries were letting go of their old reserves. China and India, perhaps, were a couple of the countries that were still hanging on to some of those concepts. But even they were allowing those reserves to go down. Uh, but this totally changed that. We can't necessarily depend on getting what we want when we need it. And it's got disrupted. It used to be that when you needed it, who was the most efficient, cost-effective co- person to get it from? Now it's, well, are you a friend of Russia or are you a foe of Russia? Are you a friend of China or are you a foe of China? That may impact who you do business with. That lengthens shipping lines. That increases the cost of shipping. Um, countries are less comfortable with just time supplies. They're hoarding supplies, building up inventories. Um, so that tightens everything up at a higher cost. And so I think we're going to see a different philosophy as we go into this next marketing year now and we get some production back. We've had three years of La Nina when production was tight. Now we're getting some production back. And I think we're going to see countries absorb more of that to build some of those inventories. Yeah. Overall, how much was production impacted globally by the fact that Ukraine was you know, trying to, I guess, farm and also fight Russia at the same time? The decreases in exports out of Ukraine ended up not being all that significantly less than what they had the year before. Um, remember, they'd had a drought the year before, and so, so their supplies were limited coming out. They weren't able to uh, export much at all over water from the February 24th start of the war all the way into through July. And then August 1st, we saw the export initiative um, that allowed movement from the three ports around Odessa to go out. And they really did a pretty good job of moving grain out. And they were also working on shifting, shipping grain to the west over rail into Eastern Europe. And so they got exports up to about five, five and a half million metric tons. There were times prior to the war they could export nine to 10 million metric tons. That wasn't common, but they could get it that high at times. But five, five and a half million metric tons was pretty impressive. Um, that continued on until uh, through the next 
well, really is till November, October, November, um, when Russia started slow walking the inspections of the ships. All the ships had to be inspected that were heading to Ukraine and after they left Ukraine by Russian inspectors. And it got down to where they were only inspecting two to two and a half ships per day. And a lot of these are smaller ships as well. So that really started to put a drag on what they were able to get out of the country. But the bigger problem is not the ability to export now it's a reduction in production mm. uh, we saw production productive output go down about 30 percent depending on the crop plus or minus this year we're going to see another decline of that degree this coming year uh, probably more significant for corn uh, because it, as we know it's a high input crop and so they're going toward the oil seeds oil seeds have less input requirements as we know and have a higher value per unit and so they're going to take advantage of that and so more of those acres are going to oil seeds that'll be sunflowers rapeseed uh, soybeans so they'll become more of an oilseed exporter, less of wheat and corn, and those volumes are going to continue to decrease. And this war is not anywhere close to over. It's going to take about five years to rebuild once it is over. So we're probably looking at a decrease of them being a significant factor um, in the world market for quite some time. What what brings war premium back into the market? It, it like because you it, it like you it said at the beginning. We, we've sort of been, and it, it feels kind of awful when I, it lulled to sleep a little bit. We're, we're a long ways away from the conflict. And so that's what I mean yeah. by that. But is, is, are there events that where the market's like, oh, oh yeah, right. This is going on. The market, you know, so much money in the market today comes from Wall Street. It's not the traditional ag traders that we had for so long. You and I remember it's more Wall Street money. How does Wall Street money behave? We trade a story for a while, and then we've traded that. Let's move on to the next thing. They think it's priced in. Well, not necessarily if you still have the problem. So something has to happen to remind them, as you say, that we have the problem. That might be uh, another conflict erupting that intensifies the shortfall. It may be a weather problem. If we were to have a major drought in Brazil's uh, Safrina Corn Belt here over the next two to three months, that that could remind them of it. Same thing in a major wheat producing area of the world or the Midwest of this summer. Something like that to say, oh, wait a minute, we are kind of tight. We don't have Ukraine to depend on. It's going to take an event like that probably to wake the market up again. How much is out there of, like, we talked about like, you know, people have had to choose sides mm-hmm. and, and the, the changing the trade flows of different commodities, depending on where you sit uh, on, on all of this uh, as a country, how much of that is being ta- like, so we, we talk about that in the open, but the reality behind the scenes maybe isn't exactly uh what we're saying and what we're doing are two different things. Is that you're, we're getting maybe product out of Russia, but it's coming via another location, things like that. Is, is that highly prevalent or what's the status there? Yeah, that's highly prevalent. Um, okay. <laughs> it's probably best documented in the oil movement uh, where we're seeing a significant amount of oil go on what's called the dark fleet. Uh, particularly now with the West putting price caps on Russian oil. So Russia says we're not going to sell oil to anyone who supports the price caps. Well, a lot of that oil is still moving through, but because of the regulations that were put in place to enforce it, 
that means that it can't be on a ship flagged and getting insurance necessarily from the normal means. So it has to be part of the dark fleet that's not really tracked. It gets coverage through Russia or some other place. Um, so the question is, are there enough ships in that dark fleet to haul the oil? And so the limitations will not be on the availability of oil or the availability of buyers of the oil. It'll be on the number of ships willing to do business that way. That's going to be the primary limitation. Um, similar in the grain and oil seed markets, particularly the wheat in some extent, corn, we're seeing a lot of wheat moving through other countries being or even being shipped or shifted from one vessel to another out in the open waters. So a lot of that's happening. That's one way we're getting by right now. I think the risk here on the wheat side particular is if this thing continues to escalate, which it looks like it is between Russia and the West, I'm going to say, mm -hmm. and we see a further tightening of sanctions that really shut that dark fleet down, that's when we could really tighten up supply. The world to this point is says we're anti-Russia on everything except don't take away our food and fertilizer. And so it's going to come down, are we willing to go hungry, so to speak, to really tighten the vice down on those sanctions? Because until we're ready to go hungry, um, the essential commodities are going to find a way to flow. You, I have so many questions about this dark fleet. Is this like the, <laughs> is this the modern pirate or, um, like, or what is what, what is this? Well, I guess you could say so, but it's basically uh, Russia sets its up its own system to okay. to find insurance coverage necessary to get fleets to go um, and make sure they're covered. Because if you're a shipper, what's the biggest thing you're concerned about is my ship? Am I going to lose the asset that, that I have in that ship? And as long as I can be assured I'm not going to lose it, that it's safe, uh, that it's insured, that it's covered in some way, I'm going to do it. And if I have to turn off my sensor so that they can't tell where I'm at, where I loaded at, or whatever, I'll do that. As long as I don't lose that asset, I'm willing to do it. Um, it just have to be enough ships willing to do that. Gotcha. The grain deal. Uh What's the status of that? And is it a given that we just continue to renew and roll this over and, and there's going to be some calmness? Or is this something we should be paying a little bit closer attention to? Yeah, each time it comes up for renewal, we rally the markets on, oh, no, Russia's saying that they're not in favor of it. And then we realize, oh, it's going to come through again in the price breaks on the wheat market in particular. Same thing this time around. Uh, the thinking right now is that uh, Russia is politically not in a position right now to upset Turkey or the United Nations. And so they will probably go ahead and agree to another extension. I would anticipate another three to four month extension. I would anticipate they'll still probably try to continue to slow walk um, the inspections, trying to limit what comes out. But they're willing to do this because this isn't a fight worth taking when they know that Ukraine's production is in steady decline anyway. And so Ukraine's ability to be a major exporter is eventually going to come to an end anyway because they're going to run out of stuff to export. How much is China choosing sides? When you, when you think about the purchasing of commodities, of course, uh, North America is is you know, China's a big customer in some of these commodities. Uh, how much is China choosing sides when it comes to the commodity purchase side? They have tried to remain very neutral to this point because they did not want to face the sanctions that Russia has faced. That is changing significantly this week. Um, 
China came out on Tuesday with a major hit piece on the United States, 4,000-word hit piece published by their state media. The very next day, they published another article talking about China's plan for peace in the world, which again is kind of seen as a hit piece on the United States. All the world's problems are the fault of the United States. Those two pieces published by state media in China seem to be directed toward preparing the people of China for a more direct conflict with the United States. Simultaneously, their top foreign minister individual was touring several countries in Europe, talking to leaders, and then ended up in Moscow. The, well, he went through Kiev Ukraine, I think the day after President Biden's surprise visit there, and then went to Moscow. China cannot afford to see Russia lose this war. It's not that they want Russia to be strong, but they can't afford Russia's defeat. They need Russia to be strong enough to be a partner with them versus the West. So they need Russia to succeed. So the question is, what will they do? The first thing is expected by the end of this week, we'll hear a peace plan proposed by China. I don't think that peace plan will be acceptable to the to the West, but they would like to see it done but peacefully. If that doesn't work, then there's some speculation that they will start offering lethal military aid to Russia. That would pull China directly into the conflict versus the United States. I anticipate the peace plan will probably be, okay, Russia, what you're worried about is you don't trust the West. If you don't defeat Ukraine, then that allows the West to come in to attack you. How about if we guarantee your safety so anyone who attacks you is also attacking us? I anticipate that type of thing, similar like we have with NATO to protect them. Um even that probably would not be acceptable. The part of the terms would also be that Russia probably get to keep what they already occupy, and that's a no-go for Ukraine and for much of the West as well. So that means this thing continues to escalate. China is not going to let Russia lose. Russia said we're a nuclear power. There's no reason for us to lose. The West is determined not to let Ukraine lose. This thing's going to continue to escalate. It feels a little bit like people lining up on sides ahead of World War II. Unfortunately, that that is uh, – very correct. It does feel very much that way, and that's mm-hmm. the scary part about yes. all of this. As, as we think about the markets ahead here in, in 23, do you expect – the, the war in Ukraine to play a major role in terms of what happens and which direction where we go from here? I think what it does is provide an underlying support. I don't see us going back down to the prices we had here a few years ago. I think it keeps us at a higher plateau. Doesn't necessarily give us a rallying point unless the dynamics change. Uh, with La Nina dying, we're going into a more favorable weather pattern overall, which tends to favor global production. That can help ease some of the supply concerns until we cycle again into more weather problems again. But I do think it helps keep us more elevated and maybe headline driven. If any headline comes across that might risk things, um, then the markets will react. Been hearing more and more people a little bit concerned about the back half of the year and, and the market. Are you in that camp right now? I am assuming that, um, uh, first of all, Brazil has a huge soybean crop. 
and, and plenty enough to offset the losses in Argentina. It's just a logistics issue of can we get them to where they need to be. Uh, the corn crop, if Brazil has a big corn crop in their safrina crop, that helps ease the concerns on corn. We're basically seeing Ukraine corn production shift to Brazil now. Um, and then with La Nina, we expect North America to have a decent corn crop as well. Um, so that eases those concerns and could allow some weakness in these markets as we get in the last half of the marketing year. I think near term, we see more of that support because the market's not sure how all that's going to play out over the next 60 to 90 days. Um, with the death of La Nina, we're probably looking at a wet uh, spring in the U.S. Midwest, particularly central and eastern parts of that which could narrow our planting windows that could keep the, you know, I say this on a day when the, uh, the corn market just kind of collapsed. Um, but I do think it provides some support underneath of this market until we see how these things play out over the next 60 to 90 days. But beyond that, we're going to have to have something new to provide support in these markets or we're vulnerable to going lower. Especially with that fickle Wall Street money, as you talked about. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, finally, you you, t- you always talk to a lot of people on the ground, no matter what country that we were talking about, Arlen. Isn't it sort of a, just amazing to you, the fact that with all of this happening in Ukraine, to only have production drop 30%, it actually blows me away. It really, it really does. Um, I'm very impressed with what they were able to accomplish in 2022. The challenges are going to be much greater this year. Being able to get the fuel, being able to get the fertilizer. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be tough. The reports coming out of Ukraine are always optimistic. I felt like they were way overly optimistic this last year, um, but I was too pessimistic. I failed to recognize the full resilience of farmers willing to be out on the tractor with flak jackets uh, to do their farming um, and what they are willing to do. The challenges, though, are becoming much greater with the infrastructure being destroyed in many areas with power and water. Um, and it's just becoming increasingly challenging, let alone to get the financing to be able to put in crops. And I think we're really going to see some big dynamic shifts in 2023. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see production cut another 40 to 50 percent instead of the 30 percent or so that's currently being forecast. Is that 40 to 50 from two from years last ago? year? From, from even last from last year? year. Mm-hmm. From, from a th- oh, wow. Okay. That's, that, that's pretty significant. Yeah. Okay. Arlen, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, As always, great perspective, great analysis. Thank you so much and look forward to our next chat. Absolutely, Sean. Take care.